0: Podcast
1: One Production. Big Questions.
0: G'day, I'm Adam Spencer, and in this episode of The Big Questions, we meet quite an amazing man. He's the co founder of a museum that we'll talk about soon, but he also works at NASA's jpl the jet propulsion laboratory i'd humbly suggest there are a few cooler workplaces you could have on a business card in the world than jpl let's find out who he is and exactly what he does dan goods welcome to the big questions howdy has the novelty worn off of telling people
1: oh, do i don't do a bit of work at jpl no i mean it, it really is a special place and and the longer i'm there the more i realize it for people listening who don't know, what what, what actually yeah. is the, what yeah. is the JPL? Yeah, when I first got there, um, I knew that they did like robots, yep. <laughs> but sure. that was about it. And so, what uh, JPL is one of the um, multiple NASA centers, and we focus on robotic exploration of the solar system. And so that that could be uh, uh, the rovers that are on Mars right now were built by my friends at, at JPL. Uh, the Voyager spacecraft that's mm. beyond the edge of the solar system, mm. it's been going for forty years. Uh, that was built at JPL. JPL and we still get data uh, right, oh. you know, today from uh, from that. Uh, we also spend a lot of time studying the Earth. So there's about uh, 19 satellites that NASA has that study the Earth, and uh, JPL is a big part of that, trying to help us understand our oceans and and atmosphere and storms and earthquakes and all that sort of stuff. So everyone listening now goes, okay, so you're a sort of robotic
0: building, engineering, maths nerd type of dude. And this is the great twist.
1: You're not really, are you? No, not at all. Yeah. (laughs) What do you do with
0: yourself? What was your background and how did that get you to JPL?
1: Yeah, so I ended up um, going to an art school. It's called Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. And I remember I used to live um, in Washington State and I remember driving down with my wife and on the freeway there was two exits and one said Art Center College of Design and the next one said NASA JPL. And I didn't really know what happened there, but I said, oh, this is an amazing. As a
0: graduate of the Arts Centre... Did you do much math or engineering at no, the Art Center? No,
1: no, no. Uh, what happened was I, I sort of accidentally walked in on a, um, a lecture class, and I heard this guy who is a fine artist, but he was working at Caltech, so the California Institute of Technology, mm-hmm. uh, amazing institution, and they actually run JPL for the government. And so um, I, I ended up getting to do an internship with him and uh, spent the summer and uh, just being around all these different scientists thinking about big ideas. Ideas, and then this artist who is really working with them, helping them think through ideas, and, and coming up with new ways of visualizing data. And I thought, wow, I, I I would you know I could go work at an ad agency, or I could work in branding, or something like that. But uh, I want to work at a research center. And so, eventually, I ended up getting to meet the director of the Jet Propulsion Lab, and I had, like, two seconds to sell myself. And, <laughs> and uh, How did you? What, what, yeah. what, what was your pitch yeah. to get a, another resident artist on campus at the JPL? Yeah. Well, I I, I said, uh, wouldn't it be cool to have artists involved in brainstorming future missions? And, and he said, wonderful, that's great. I was going to say, that's catchy. That's a pretty good elevator pitch.
0: <laughs> you want artists involved... In brainstorming future space missions,
1: yeah, well, because I'd just seen the um, at that point they were landing on Mars with these uh, giant airbags, hmm. and um, and that's a crazy idea. You're gonna, you're basically gonna, you know, come down through the atmosphere going really, really fast, and these giant airbags are going to inflate around your 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 you know, multi-million, if not billion-dollar machine, and then you're going to bounce on Mars. People might think.
0: have seen, yeah, computer yeah. simulations of how this was meant to work, it sort of becomes encased in a pyramid of big balloony airbags, and if it lands on a hill or a slope, it'll just roll, roll, roll. Then from what I remember seeing in the videos, whichever way it landed, you could then fold down the sides of the pyramids, and your rover would... Roll on out, pick up some sunlight, and off you go. That sounds like a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> why, why do you, as an artist, look at that and go, "That's silly"?
1: Because that's crazy. I mean, you're you're throwing this multi-billion-dollar thing on the ground in bubble wrap, mm-hmm. right? And so I love analogies, and and I was thinking about bubble wrap, or you know, maybe uh, you know, uh, airbags, inflators, and, mm-hmm. and cars, and that sort of thing, and and those kind of ideas are just fascinating to me. And, and and I thought, well, maybe maybe people like me could be involved in in helping push those ideas,
0: and so. They took you on. Did you just
1: fill one of the currently available positions <laughs> for artists working on this sort of stuff? No, it was
0: a, it was a bit of a gamble on their
1: part. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, so, so the guy uh, he looked at some of the strange projects that I did when I was in in, uh, in art school. I I came up with all these different ways of uh, working with soda pop bottles. I, I came up with a way of putting them on the side of a of a taco truck stand so that mm-hmm. as it drove along, it would make music. All these uh, different um, in the soda in the bottles. same way that you can blow yeah. across the lid of a bottle yourself. Exactly and make a little hum. yeah, Exactly, yeah. And then made a pipe organ out of them and a bunch of other things. And, and uh, he looked at me funny and he's like, well, I don't really understand what it is that you do, but I'm going to give you six months and we'll see what happens.
0: What happened in that six months?
1: Yeah, well... um they basically sort of left me alone. They said, um, here's where they're developing new mission concepts. All these different people are working on fascinating ideas. Here's a couple of them that you might think are interesting. And at the time, they were looking for planets around other stars. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, that's mind-blowing, especially then, you know, 14 years ago, there wasn't too many planets found around other stars. These are are the things we call exoplanets, exoplanets, yeah? Exoplanets, exactly, Mm yeah. And, uh, you know, you see it in science fiction, but for it to be reality is like a, a different thing. Mm-hmm. And then they were saying, oh, we, we want to find Earth-like planets around other stars. And to me, that was just like, good luck. You know? <laughs> good luck doing that, right? <laughs> yeah, and the so- boy from the old <laughs> art center in Pasadena is yeah. yeah. not really backing you on yeah. this one. Yeah. Um, but then they'd give me all these big numbers, and I, uh, about how many planets and stars and you know things probabilities and this and that and, and I'm not very good at math and so so to me I had to create an experience for me to understand what they were talking about okay and so uh, one of the first projects that I did was trying to give that sense of scale and so I I had a grain of sand yep and um, I, lo- I love this <laughs> and the grain of sand represented the milky way galaxy mm-hmm. so we live in the milky way galaxy there's hundreds of billions of stars but if that's just the single grain of sand You need 60 rooms full of sand to show all the other galaxies that we know about. Mm. And then what I would do is I'd have a whole bunch of sand and then I'd have under a magnifying glass a single grain of sand, which represented our galaxy. Mm -hmm. And what was cool is I had someone there drill a hole a tenth of the size of the grain of sand into the grain of sand.
0: Let's just pause on that (laughs) for a moment. To drill a hole through... A
1: grain of sand. And most people ask if it was a laser or something like that, but it was actually a carbide drill bit. They actually had drill bits that were super, super tiny. In fact, wow. they had smaller ones, but if they got too small, then they're going to be really hard to see, and I, okay. you know, I didn't want yeah, You want to, want you to, to be able, able to see the holes through your <laughs> grain of sand. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> so, what did that hole represent? Yeah. One tenth, you said one-tenth one tenth, the yeah. width
1: of the grain of sand? So that hole represents where we live, but it's also where we have found over 3,000 planets around other stars so far. And we can hardly see anything. I mean, our technology, as, as great as it is, it, it's really primitive. And uh, So the whole piece becomes a visual metaphor for
0: if with limited technology, we found 3,000 things already within that small hole yeah. in the grain of sand, the single grain of sand, imagine how many things
1: could be in all the grains of sand oh, yeah. in all 60 rooms. So when I first started to work on this, uh, it used to be six rooms full of sand. Mm-hmm. And literally last year or a year and a half ago, there was a big press release okay. about how, oh, well, you know, I think we found a few more galaxies out mm. there. And so it literally has to go from six rooms full of sand to 60 mm. <laughs> rooms full of sand. Mm. and um, And then we're just, we're finding planets... All the time, and scientists really believe that that pretty much every single star has a solar system of some sort, mm-hmm. and that really, you know, blows me away. And and, okay, and the so idea of an Earth-like planet is not so far-fetched. So that piece you've done there, uh,
0: for me listening, or for anyone in the in the audience listening, or any general member of the public who came and watched that, that's a really powerful visual image. That could help them understand something about this concept. It's a great sort of public outreach tool. But do you do work with the engineers themselves, or is it mainly public explanation of the incredible stuff the engineers are doing?
1: Yeah, uh, we do both. And so um, we call the stuff that we were just talking about uh, sneaking up on learning. Nice. So uh, if, if I say I'm going to teach you something, you might, you know, not, not like I'll it, die. right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, trying to build something that's beautiful, mysterious, it's captivating, and then you start asking questions. Um, the other aspect of things that we, uh, we talk about is uh, helping them think through their thinking. Mm-hmm. And so um, obviously with our math backgrounds, we're not going to solve their equations. Uh, we don't have the engineering know-how, but um, a lot of times we ask them questions that they're Peers don't ask them, mm-hmm. and so in doing that, uh, they start to think about their projects in a, in a different way, and um, and hopefully through that, they they have a, a bigger, uh, a more nuanced grasp of the work that they're already doing, because the work that they're doing is really complicated, and so most of the time, you end up thinking about just. You know, a, a very narrow aspect of mm-hmm. the whole thing because it's so complicated and there's so many little parts to it that, um, you know, sometimes you need uh, to remember the bigger picture of what you're working on.
0: I think I've seen images of NASA scientists doing sort of uh, design workshops where they're playing almost sort of design games. What, what are the, some of the things you you get scientists to do there and what what's the aim of it all?
1: Yeah, uh, well, we get involved in a lot of brainstorming sessions. And so um, part of it is just when you get together... You hear this term all the time. Scientists say, mm-hmm. and whenever I hear that, I laugh because <laughs> they're not all just saying the same thing. They're all mm-hmm. individuals. They all have you know their own thoughts, and they have their own backgrounds and their own expertise. Mm-hmm. And um, my wife um, uh, was a chemist. She went to school for chemistry, and I'd always ask her physics questions, and she would say, "I don't, I don't know the answer to that." And <laughs> drive me crazy! I'm like, "You're a scientist. <laughs> you got to know this like simple thing, right?" <laughs> but it's not true. <laughs> and so when they get together, their group of people, they don't all speak the same language. It'd be like if I asked you to sing. Yeah. When you're an artist, well, bang something <laughs> out for me, me quickly. Don't ask me to sing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, when you have engineers and scientists from different uh, backgrounds, uh, you know, maybe there's a, an Earth scientist with an uh, exoplanet scientist, mm-hmm. they, they speak different languages. And I think uh, something that that designers are pretty good at is, is trying to listen and see you know, when people are speaking different languages and trying to help them speak the same language. Mm. And so a lot of times they'll be brainstorming an idea and you'll realize that if you've ever been in a conversation where you realize that two people are not saying, you know, understanding what each other's mm-hmm. saying, mm-hmm. right? Uh, then, then you maybe you draw a picture, or you bring an object, or you, you talk about it and make sure everyone is like, oh yeah, this is what we're all talking about. And Do you think you can look at individual
0: projects that NASA has done and, and look at some aspect of the design of something and say, that's only happened because of a specific workshop I know that engineer did, or is it a more subtle process where you just you, you, you feel a resonance with it and you know you're bringing some sort of value?
1: Yeah, well, um, missions... Take a long time, hmm. so so. Um, I worked on a mission called the Juno mission at the at the very beginning. Oh. It's at Jupiter, but you know it just got there, right? Hmm. And that was like ten years ago or you know, something like that when we started. And so, um, and and all these missions kind of go through. Lots of changes through the whole entire process, and so um, it's hard to be able to say, you know, this is exactly what happened because mm. of that. But what I can say is that the whole culture of JPL has really changed over over the past fifteen years, uh, from one where they didn't know if they needed. You know, anyone mm. like, uh, you know, skill sets like ours around to now they want more and more and more. And so we have a bigger team. I have, oh, uh, really? I have, yeah. So, so I have a team of like seven. We have a bunch of freelancers. We're constantly, you know, people have to wait four, or six months to be able to work with us. And so that's cool. When, when, there, when there's changed. a
0: waiting list yeah, yeah. of engineers and rocket scientists who want to get a bit of your time. Yeah. Whereas initially, I presume you were going around yeah. and going, guys, can yeah. I help? Hey Over guys. here, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the artist. You need an artist. Yeah. Give me a call. Yeah. That must be that, and, and so that whole change of culture must be very rewarding for you it to is. have witnessed.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does, does
0: the Juno project, do, doesn't have some bottles on the side
1: like a sort of taco <laughs> truck? No. no, but we almost, got, flute. We almost got a... Um, a fleck of Galileo's bones on it. <laughs> it didn't end up
0: happening, but we were so close. There was a great sort of, we call it citizen science, people getting involved in a project where, where you got people um, to say hello to Juno as it,
1: as it flew past. Tell us about the Hi Juno project. Well, this is one of the great opportunities of when you have artists... Hanging out with the scientists and engineers because mm-hmm. uh, uh, Juno it couldn't we can 't just send it straight to Jupiter because we don 't have a big enough rocket, mm-hmm. and so what we have to do is we have to use the gravity of planets to slingshot us out mm. and so what it do is it went out towards Mars it came back towards the earth and then it got really close to the earth and the earth uh, earth's gravity slingshotted it out to Jupiter but there's this great moment where the spacecraft was going out you know far away and it came back towards the earth and uh, what could we do that would involve people? Mm-hmm. And so uh, we're talking- Because this with, is quite an amazing moment. This is a space yeah. a craft that's already traveled
0: millions of kilometers, swinging around past Earth to get a sort of kick to then head out to Jupiter.
1: Exactly. How do you
0: capture yeah, that?
1: Yeah. And so we're, um, we're trying to think, well, how could we do this? And we're thinking about social media. Mm. But then we started to kind of go old school because it turned out that one of the instruments- could pick up a whole bunch of different radio waves. One of the instruments on Juno. On on Juno. But the guy who ran that instrument had been a ham radio person ah. and he's like we could pick up ham radio signals and we're like oh wow that'd be really cool and but but you needed like a lot of people involved to be able uh, for the spacecraft to be able to hear it mm-hmm. and uh, so what we ended up doing is we ended up working we, we had to think of like well what are we going to say and if you say something too long if you've <laughs> heard yeah. you know morse code it like you take a lots of dots and dits and they would take forever to say something yeah. and so we ended up coming up with a high just to say hi. In Morse code. In Morse code, yeah. So it's yeah. Yeah. two letters. Yeah. Right, yeah. yep, yep. What we ended up doing is we made a website and um, everyone would do a dit, but it would take 30 seconds. You'd have to hold it down for 30 seconds because if we did it for like two seconds, everyone would be off, right? Yep. You know, you try to get thousands of people around the world to press at the same time, they're going to be off. And so everyone was um, 30 seconds, so it took 10 minutes to say hi. Wow. And then we had that play over and over and over and over again because we didn't know if we were going to capture it. Okay. We also had to think about the ionosphere because I don't think about that very much. No, sure. <laughs> but, but I guess the way Ham radio uh, operators Your work... Your wife could probably explain it yeah, to you a little bit. It, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, that's physics. Uh, good point. <laughs> She'll be like, I don't know. <laughs> but I guess when you you know do Morse code, uh, the signal bounces off of the ionosphere hey. and it comes back to Earth. Well, we didn't want it to bounce. No. We wanted it to go through. Hey. And so we had to actually hope for enough opening of the ionosphere. And so uh, anyways, uh, the, the day came along and uh, we we have no idea how many thousands of people, but we know a lot of different mm. people were involved and they were all pressing the button at the same time. And then then we had to go back through the data. And I remember sitting there with the scientists just trying to find that little signal because yeah. he's actually getting tons and tons of data the signal's really, really wide. And what we're looking for is this teeny, teeny, mm. tiny signal within the the big swath. Like a hole in a grain of sand. That's right. And uh, then we heard it. And it was like, oh, no way. That's it. That's that's these thousands of people from around the world all working together at
0: once. Here's some audio from the JPL uh, website. Tell us, what, what are we actually hearing here? Uh, yeah, so it's the Morse code for hi. As generated by... People on Earth holding down thirty-second characters. Let's have a listen to what Juno actually heard. You did a great project. For people will remember uh, the landing of a probe. On a comet?
1: Mm-hmm. And, Rosetta.
0: Yeah. You, you, you did something around Rosetta, didn't you? Can you explain that to the audience?
1: Yeah. So Rosetta is a European mission and a uh, crazy idea. Mm. You know, like uh, many years ago, they said, we're going to go to a comet and we're going to land on it. Mm. But all they knew of that? Good luck with that. All they knew was a, a pixel. They had a single pixel. So if you're an engineer, you know, and told, we're going to spend, you know, billions of dollars. All of Europe's gonna be watching you, you have to land on this thing, go to it (laughs) and you have a pixel, you're like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do.
0: (laughs) So when you say they have a pixel, you mean that's what that's how that's the resolution of the image we could get
1: of the comet. Correct. Yeah, yeah. And really they didn't know they didn't have a higher resolution until like a couple months before they got there. (laughs) <laughs> wow so the, the the visual technology had to evolve at speed well um th- so so they were able i think they were able to use Hubble to get a little bit higher resolution, just slightly. oh then they got they only got close enough to yeah. see it properly, wow, exactly <laughs> so like it launched and it took i can't remember it was like eight or ten years to get there, and then it had to wake up and it was like oh, there it is and and it'd then be lo- like
0: bring it be like bringing in a seven four seven and not knowing if there were lumps and cracks on the runway, yeah. Until you got to 200
1: metres up. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And what was so funny was that um, the first really decent pictures is it looked like a rubber ducky spinning in space. <laughs> it was so what so did you fun. do on Earth to capture this yeah. probe landing on
0: a spinning rubber ducky comet in
1: space? Yeah. So uh, JPL happens to work on a couple of uh, of the instruments that are on the Rosetta uh, mission. And so um, so we were... We, we worked with the uh, project manager to come up with some ideas. And David Delgado, whose name will probably come up a couple other times mm. in, in this, uh, and Liz Berrios and, and I were all brainstorming about ideas. And eventually we came up with this idea of creating a comet on Earth. Uh, but the idea of like really experiencing the tail... And so the tails is what makes a comet something you and I think about a comet. Yeah. But really a comet is just a big hunk of ice, like a mountain of ice that's flying through space. And it's just a hunk of ice until it gets closer to the sun, and then what happens is that as it warms up, it starts to uh, sublimate, sort of like mm. if you have dry ice, it, it goes from a, a solid to a gas really fast, and all that happens is that 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 gas sort of gets left behind, mm. and then that becomes the comet, uh, the comet tail, everything that we think about, and then when it goes around the sun and then it leaves again, the, the tail's gone. And so we wanted people to get a sense of that, that sense of a, of a tail, and so we ended up working with uh, an architecture firm, Studio KCA in in Brooklyn, New York, and and they um, worked on this amazing shell um, that had uh, a bunch of perforations in it, and then we put these... Uh, fogger uh, basically is like a high-powered humidifier inside mm. of it, and um, and then all this fog would sort of come out. And when the wind blew, it would basically blow this this big tail. And at night, it looks really beautiful because it has this. Um, it, it's more like a lantern sitting mm. outside. And so with this, uh, with what, especially in the summer, you know, everyone's hot, and they're like, "Oh, this is great." You know, <laughs> feeling standing <laughs> in the comet, comet like tail. a really
0: nerdy version of standing under the sprinkler on your front yeah, lawn yeah, exactly, on a, on a yeah. warm day. So well, I'm, t- I'm talking with Dan Goods, who works at JPL as a sort of and and what do you what what what's the official job title now? And what have you evolved into? <laughs> it's called visual strategist. A visual strategist at NASA's JPL. Are some engineers more open to interacting with your work than others? Are there some really hardcore dude? I'm here to answer equations. Take your crayons and go over there. And others who are completely
1: keen to be immersed in it. Yeah, well, there's different. Um, just as there's different kinds of, you know, artists and different kinds of radio personalities mm. and different kinds of everyone. There's different kinds of engineers, and um, most of what happens when you're working on these super complicated things is trying to figure out all the reasons why something won't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you got to solve all those problems, mm-hmm. and so most people's mindsets are like, "Where's, where's the problem? Where's mm-hmm. the problem? Mm-hmm. I got to solve that. Where's the problem?" And um, you need those kinds of people. You want the craggy person who says, "I don't, you know, it's not going to work," <laughs> yeah. yep. um, because hopefully they're going to. Save your bacon later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's the other side of the engineers that that are like at the beginning stages where they're like crazy ideas, and they've you know come up with things like airbags mm. and and um, uh, sky cranes mm. and all these sort of weird things. That they ask beautifully stupid questions. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so those are the people that I tend to usually uh, gravitate more to, as well as uh, them uh, gravitating uh, to us as well. But you never know. I mean, it's you know, uh, like I said, everyone's different and um and we 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 have our fair share of people that that uh maybe uh don't come to us as much but um many of them just enjoy talking it it, it the the
0: stereotype i have in my mind is mostly late 40 year old anglo guys with pocket protectors and very uh-huh. straight is it particularly ethnically diverse is it gender diverse more than it was Fifteen years ago, in the in the JPL,
1: totally, yeah. So uh, just a sense of scale. JPL is about six thousand people. Mm-hmm. So it, we would sort of like we have a city uh, within you mm. know the, the confines of LA. I'd Love to live in that city. <laughs> well, right now there's all these fires, so it's kind of scary yeah, yeah, right yeah, now. But hopefully, hopefully things are all going to be okay. Um, but yeah, so it, it's it's um, it's much more diverse now than it used to be. Um, uh, definitely ethnically, there's you know everyone everyone's there a uh, lot. Of uh, women in very high positions, and there was really a, a big push over the past ten years to hire young people and and diverse people, and and so I never I never feel like um, you know you're just sitting with old white old white men.
0: It must be a really exciting, rewarding gig for an artist who had that chance to take either of those turnoffs from the freeway to, to have <laughs> finally realized you've taken that second one and, and really made it count.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and and one of my favorite moments is when I I showed that grain of sand project to uh, a Hubble scientist, mm. and he he uses he gets to point Hubble right. Oh. And it's like isn't that amazing? Oh. <laughs> and I remember him looking down into this magnifying glass and seeing the hole into the grain of sand, and then he looked up at me. And uh, Indian fellow, and, and he's like, you reminded me why I do what I do. Oh. And I was just like, oh. You know, that was really beautiful.
0: That, that's a so. wonderful note on which let's take a quick break. We'll be back soon to talk with Dan Goods more big questions about another project, a fascinating project he's involved in that, are, that, that, that wants us all to see the world through the eyes of a, of a three-year-old. You're on The Big Questions with me, Adam Spencer. <laughs> I'm asking the big questions of Dan Goods, who works at NASA as a visual strategist. And uh, on this episode so far, we've already covered the work at uh, NASA's JPL, but you're also a museum co
1: founder. Tell us a little bit about your museum project, Dan. So I gave a talk one day, and um, sometime later, uh, a person that I sort of knew wrote me up and, and he was like, Dan, there needs to be a museum of awe and you need to run it. And I was like, What? You know <laughs> You know, you don't always get emails like that. Sure. So I just kinda went on with my work. But he was really adamant about it and and he kept bugging me and then eventually the light Turned on and I was like, oh, wow, Museum of Awe. Wouldn't it be awesome to be the director of the Museum of mm-hmm. Awe? That sounds amazing. What is that? And so uh, my creative soulmate is a guy named David Delgado. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I called him up and I said, what do you think about this thing? And, and uh, so we started, to, we had dinner and we were thinking about it and really thinking about how, you know, the Museum of Awe, it's not so much a location as much as a state of mind. Mm-hmm. Because we live in the Museum of Awe. Right. Mm -hmm. It's been around for millions of years and and, uh, billions of years. And and the museum is fascinating. You know, whether you look at the really big things, really small things, you look at humans and human behavior is inspiring where we, you know, but but we're busy. Right. The
0: Museum of ore is just a collection of all things around us that make you for a moment go. Wow.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And but we're busy right mm. and we 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 have our email and phones mm. and you know t v all this sort of stuff that we gotta figure out, and uh we kind of forget about it, but like if you walk your kid down the street and and sometimes it takes a long time because they're like fascinated with you know the dirt mm. you know and the plants mm. and you know some piece of garbage on the side of the road, they're mm. like, "Wow, look at that thing, you know <laughs> it's really interesting, and so we want to be able to help people look at. Um, uh, uh, the rest of the world in that same sort of mindset. And so uh, the idea is that it is a bit art, it's a bit science, but it's also infused with theater. So instead of being like... Uh, You're sitting in the audience looking up on a stage and seeing actors and musicians. You are on the stage Mm -hmm. and you're walking through it with actors and musicians that are sort of weaving in and out of the story of this. And it's also not a museum that's stuck in one physical location inside one Building yeah. as such, yeah. so where,
0: yeah. where is the museum? Yeah,
1: of art? well, I think one of the uh, interesting things about Oz is that you never know where you're going to find it, mm-hmm. right? And and sometimes it's in the least expected places, and so that's what we want to continue to push that idea is so, well, the uh, museum of Oz not in a museum, it's actually in places that you wouldn't expect it. It might be in a skyscraper, it might be in an abandoned building, it might be in a park or in a salt mine or you know something mm. like that, some unusual sort of place that you. You might have to have a bit of a journey to get there right and and um, the idea is that we really do we uh, sort of set design a whole place and uh, there would be multiple experiences within this uh, so it's not a museum of objects it's mm. a museum of experiences and uh, really the hope is that when you are done that you're reminded of the gift and privilege of being alive
0: that's a it's not exactly a modest mission. You've got there. <laughs> it's
1: not. I know. I know. It makes us nervous too. But but I think there's something about that idea of being um, uh, having gratitude mm. for the life that we do get to have. Mm. I know it's so today. You know, everything's negative, right? Mm. Everything's mm. negative, and and you can actually make a lot of money being negative. And mm. I like watching things that are you know dark and mysterious and that sort of thing. Mm. But I think there's. I think there is there is a desire out there for um, experiences that you have with other people that lift you up. Hmm. And what. sometimes it can be as simple as sitting and just watching a, a beautiful sunset yeah,
0: or the yeah. way waves hit a rock at a certain beach or something like that. So where are you along
1: the line with this... Project of realizing your museum of awe, yeah, so we've been really fortunate in uh, a developer who who uh, you know develops skyscrapers and mm-hmm. other sorts of buildings uh, they really like the idea that we had, and so they've given us locations at a couple different uh, places to mm. test out our idea and um, free property is is wonderful mm. and um, so we have a few different uh, demos uh, one one area we have uh, a bunch of small experiences that uh, give you a sense of the overall Um, the bigger picture, Mm. and then we have another location where we take one of those and we blow it out to a really big experience so you understand how scale really changes things.
0: It sounds like the sort of concept that would also be open to other people around the world creating their own stuff, to yours, and you could almost be commissioning or curating to
1: provide a sort of International web of all. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I think we we uh, everywhere we go, anyone we talk to, people are excited to be a part of it, and uh, we really see the vision of of us starting it, but then handing the keys over to lots of other people and and kind of getting their take on it as well.
0: When when you're talking about your your this ability to inspire people, and when you're talking about your design work and the intersection of design and art and engineering, I'm also drawn to the example of Apple, where people said that you know. Well, the sort of stuff that I've read said that, you know, Steve Jobs and his, jo- Johnny Ive, mm-hmm. and that their philosophy was one of design being as important as the actual functionality of the device. And you'd hear stories about Steve Jobs insisting that he didn't like what it looked like inside a computer. And people mm-hmm. would say, dude, no one's ever going <laughs> to see inside the computer. It uh-huh. doesn't matter. It should be beautiful there yeah, too. Yeah. Two completely different fields, but do you feel a sort of harmony with what... You know, you, you hear those sort of people working towards not just that it has to be functional, but a, a beauty in it is also of, of, of importance.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, I, I can't remember who said this, but um, the idea of when, when you uh, speak, people uh, don't al- always remember what you say, but they remember mm-hmm. the way you made them feel and i think that goes to any sort of experiences as, as well and and so if you uh if you really think about the human being mm-hmm. and their experience in that um what are they touching and you know, what kind of materials are they is it hot is it cold does it make them feel differently you know uh and and i think those are those are things that um they're like hidden locks inside of people, you know, like when you smell something, and but it happens to remind you of, you know, some experience that you had in the past. It, it, it's really strong, you know, and, and I think we spend a lot of time on the visual nature of things, mm. um, and um, and I think we really want to make sure that we think about the multi sensual sort of experience. You've done some incredible stuff at JPO, doing some incredible stuff with the Museum of Or. They are talking about
0: this mission to Mars and they need 100 or so people to go who will never get to come back. But if you were the first artistic director on Mars <laughs> and you'd be creating an artistic legacy on a planet in which there's never been art before, we don't even know about what really it would be like as a canvas, but you'd then be instructing the children of those first hundred people and your forebears would then, you know, create the artistic legacy. Could I twist your arm to go along and be the first artistic director on Mars? <laughs> Asterix, you don't get to come back, Dan.
1: <laughs> oh, man, that, that would be a hard one. Uh, <laughs> I, I, think I, would, I think I'd end up staying with my family back here on Earth, mm. but, um, uh, but I think there are plenty of single people out there that would be amazing <laughs> at, at doing that. If, if I was single, maybe that'd be different.
0: Let's say, Dan, okay, yeah. I can understand that. that your family sounds very important. <laughs> Just say you were accidentally stumbled onto the ship and it yeah. left. <laughs> you're the artistic director for this new colony of 100 yeah. people living in a in a remote station on Mars and you're never coming back. How do you run that?
1: Hmm. Well, I think humans... We love story, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that's a great opportunity to start uh, a new folklore and a new story for human beings. uh, Because thousands of years from then, people are going to look back at the stories that Mm. were built then, and that's going to form the entire society and the whole world of Mars in the future. Legend maker. Yeah. Myth maker. (laughs) I like the way you see the world and the universe, my
0: friend. It's been wonderful meeting you, Dan. Thanks for answering some big questions today. Awesome. Thank you. This episode of The Big Questions, as always, was produced and edited by Alex Mitchell in the Podcast One studios. Executive producer Jamie Show, series producer Caroline Pegram and the theme music provided by the good people at Uncanny Valley. If you want to hear more big questions answered, go to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app or look us up on iTunes. I'm Adam Spencer. I'll be back with some more big questions soon. Questions.